Hi, it's Danae Stack. As my second favorite podcaster, Judge John Hodgman, recently told me in his episode, Go Set a Tip Jar. The work takes time and effort, and money shows you value the work we're doing. I know there are many loyal fans out there who value my husband's hard work. He works on Solve the World every day. So July's the month. We're going to shamelessly ask you to go to DanteStack.com right now, DanteStack.com, and click on tip jar. If all of you thousands of loyal fans would just donate whatever you can, a couple dollars or a little bit more, we can continue doing the work here at Solve the World. Thanks. Bye. Previously on Solve the World. Marshall has tiptoed behind Isaac and is choking him. Jen turns back. She sees the look of hate in Marshall's eyes. He's a demon. He looks like an evil Avenger, the Grim Reaper. He chokes Isaac. Slapping his hand back, Isaac jolts the box cutter into Marshall's abdomen. Frightened by the pain and shock, Marshall releases Isaac. The light from the box is eclipsing everyone now. Jen can hardly see anything. It's so bright. Solve the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Acting is venom to the soul. Episode 71, Set Pieces. Dictionary.com lists six definitions for the two-word phrase set piece. Only the fourth definition concerns us today. It reads, A scene, action, or the like, having a conventional form and functioning as part of the structure of a work of art, literature, etc. You know this intuitively, if not consciously. Big superhero movies, for instance, as a rule, have at least one incredible set piece to show off in the trailer. In the original X-Men film, the climax of the entire movie, wherein the hodgepodge assemblage of good mutants now donned as X-Men fight against the iconoclastic Magneto and company, takes place on top of the Statue of Liberty herself. You know, as soon as you see the Statue of Liberty, that this scene is important. The X-Men are fighting for all of America. In the same vein, in any movie featuring an alien invasion, an asteroid attack, or any other crisis that could be considered a natural disaster, the Eiffel Tower is always going to be eviscerated. It's a beautiful set piece. Probably also San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. See X-Men 3, The Last Stand. London's Big Ben and the Sydney Opera House are often second-tiered set pieces. If the violence has risen so high that the movie requires more than one international landmark to be destroyed. Jennifer Dash has spent a bevy of time amidst various set pieces during her travels and travails. Today, we will briefly tour five set pieces that Jen and her colleagues have inundated themselves with. Set piece number one, Mrs. Moose's Mansion. There's not much to tell here, actually. Decked out in hazmatish garb and sporting an old-school VW Beetle as their ride, Jen and fellow smugly security Julian made their way from Magical Kingdom to Santa Barbara, home of the eponymous Mrs. Moose. 
a cartoonist who once upon a time saved Jen's life by exporting her bad blood out of her system while simultaneously importing good blood that she just so happened to have laying around her refrigerator. Jen was excited to see the old woman again, but the excitement was also tinged with not a small amount of anxiety. She had first met Mrs. Moose while attempting a midnight break-in. Say what you will about the elderly cat person drawer, she was unpredictable. You couldn't say with any amount of certainty what behavior the old lark would showcase today. The excitement in Jen's stomach churned to dread as they neared the moat and castle. Jen was in such a bad way the last time she was here. Mrs. Moose's pavilion stands as a set piece because it doesn't fit its habitat. It's a medieval castle against the backdrop of palm trees and flip-flops. Furthermore, what remains within the bound-up walls of the castle are not legions of archers and minions protecting the king from the tyranny of the people. No, it's just one little old lady. Knock at the door. It doesn't open at first, but Jen and Julian can hear someone klutzing around inside. They're coming. The two some from the submarine still sport their hazmat suits, despite the fact that 90 miles north of the blast zone, they're surely safe from any immediate harm. The great door opens. But the onlooker is not Mrs. Moose. It's an Asian woman, clearly dressed in a long orange robe and bald as the day she was born. I cannot help you. Go away now, the lady says and begins closing the monstrous door. Wait, wait. Uh... The Croatoan, Jen says anxiously. There's no Croatoan here. Door closed. Try, try again. Maybe that's her maid, Jen says reassuringly to herself as much as to Julian. No answer. Knock. No answer. Julian begins pounding on the door. at least 15 minutes later when the door finally opens again. What? The bald woman shouts. Hi, I'm Jenny Dash, Jen says. Why did she just call herself Jenny? She's never done that before. The girl's eyes widen. Mrs. Moose isn't here. You're too late. Oh, did she leave anything for me? Uh, just this. Be right back. The door closes on them once again. Julian and Jen wait for what seems like an eternity. Julian, not matured in the fine art of perseverance, bangs on the door repeatedly, apparently in an effort to speed the house guest's return. When she did return, she handed Jen a sticky note. Go there. Why? What's there? What you're looking for? The Croatoan? The bald girl blinked indecipherably. She didn't know. Okay, um... Anything else? Can we come in, maybe? You know, uh, for tea? Closed door. Jen reviewed the sticky note's address. How long do you think it'll take us to get there? Julian looked at Jen dejectedly.
Set piece number two, Anmo. Operation No More Orphans, a set piece we've been following for quite a while already, is set to boil. Rune Abdo and her group of fellow newcomers were the last trains into Anmo. Since then, going on four weeks, no new children had arrived. What that meant, most of all to the children, the inhabitants and cruel participants in a zero-sum weekly chess match, was that the odds of getting kicked out of Anmo were growing every week. Two kids leaving out of 200 is just 1%, but two out of 198 is an ever so slight percentage increase. The game was changing. All the while, it was getting colder. Little Scout further could tell by her trips through the greenhouse that the entire complex of Anmo was under yards and yards of snow. Though the bunkers of the facility were heated, they weren't heated enough. And as the outside temperature apparently dropped every week, it seemed the heater was losing the battle more and more with each passing day. The main consequence was that if you wanted to stay warm, particularly at night, you needed to spend some of your numeral allowance on blankets. Scout couldn't afford such a luxury. Every week was a fight to get her yellow number green. That took hours and hours of work. But the poor thing didn't calculate correctly. She didn't realize the severity of needing to stay warm. Therefore, she shivered on the floor every night. And, just as any good parent could have foreseen, Scout got sick. On any other week, Scout would have been thankful that the gang violence, the rash of Killjoy and company device slangs, all of that stuff, that nonsense, had suddenly come to a blistering halt just a week or so ago. This should be good news. But unfortunately, a sick scout, unable to perform any daily tasks due to a headache and fever that brought with it delusions of grandeur, all this meant... Redline. Had there been the usual Friday night smashing, Scout's final score of 14 might have survived as merely a yellow. But not this week. Saturday came. Scout wasn't cognizant enough to even take note of the lottery. All she was capable of hearing was her own name. Scout further was banished. She left Anmo that day, headed on a train going north, deeper into the cold lands. Interlude. 50 People Whom I Pity by DTS. Number 16, Charles Bukowski. The following is a quote attributed to Mr. Bukowski. For those who believe in God, most of the big questions are answered. But for those of us who can't readily accept the God formula, the big answers don't remain stone-written. We adjust to new conditions and discoveries. We are pliable. Love need not be a command, nor faith a dictum. I am my own God. We are here to unlearn the teachings of the church, state, and our educational system. We are here to drink beer. We are here to kill war. We are here to laugh at the odds and live our lives so well that death will tremble to take us. Friends can hurt you and annoy you more than enemies and strangers ever could. The reason Heinrich Karl Bukowski unnerves me so much, and should unnerve you, is that he gets so much of this world right. Much more than that, even, he sees things for what they are. And still more than that, 
He knows we're playing a rigged game. He is a function, a component part of the few, the proud, the truly honest. That's what makes his blasphemy so hard to swallow. This is not about religion, not really about God. It is about life. It is about truth and the ways in which we seek it out. Bukowski is dead. His tombstone reads simply, Don't try. Here is a man worthy of my pity because for all of his ambulations and drinking and whoring, he did try. Or rather, he begun to try. At some point along the way, I cannot tell if it occurred before or after his relative fame, he gave up. And that would be one thing. A man can give up whenever he likes. There's no shame in it to know with certainty that you failed. Nothing at all wrong with that. Bukowski infuriates because he didn't stop at giving up. He didn't stop at not trying. By no means. He flew himself and many others along with himself headfirst into delusion. Let's take the above quote. He says he's his own God. That could be true if he could do anything. He knows he can't. That's one of the thematic resonances of Bukowski's poetry. You can't. Thematic nihilism. He perhaps rails against organized religion, but is it not King Solomon of the Hebrew Bible who cries out this very hymn? There's nothing new under the sun. A true God makes new things. A true God creates what hasn't yet been. Bukowski is no God. He knows it, too. How do I know this? The last line of the quote. We are here to laugh at the odds and live so well that death will tremble to take us. It sounds good. Beautiful, even. But look closely. The sentence can be parsed into two statements. We are here to laugh at the odds. That's part one. It means this. Bukowski knows his fate is overwhelmingly likely to end as it does for everyone. In seemingly pointless, fruitless death. Good enough. Part two. Death will tremble to take us. Bukowski died of leukemia at age 73 on March 9, 1994. That's a long time ago. Many, many, many people have died since then. Death is still doing its thing. I don't think it trembled when Mr. Bukowski crossed its veil. Not even a bit, but I would wager a bet that at that final hour, Charles himself trembled. Remember, remember, if the game is rigged, rage. Rage against the dying of the light. Or, if you prefer, acquiesce. Give in. Don't try. But don't pretend. Don't lie to yourself. Don't delude yourself into thinking you're fighting some holy war by drinking yourself stupid. Flee hypocrisy. Fight your best. Fight for your life. Or don't. Don't try. But also, don't fake trying. And don't fake not trying. Set piece number three. The Room. The last thing Marshall felt was the pain in his abdomen and a light too blinding for his eyes. Now, here, he found himself pain-free, standing in the center of a room. It was bright, almost as bright as the illuminated graviton box. The hue of white this room radiated required Marshall not only to squint in order to make anything out, but also to shield his eyes, partially, from the richness of the brightness. There didn't appear to be a door, nor any windows. A room with no windows or doors. The radiance wasn't coming from a light fixture or a 10,000-watt bulb of any sort. Rather, the light seemed to be seeping from the floor, walls, and ceilings themselves. Marshall tapped on the ground with his shoe. Hard. He walked over to the wall, touched it with his hand. It was marble, but not the finely sanded down marble that accompanies exotic dining halls and lounges. No. This rock was jaggedy, as if someone carved this room out of a mountain, maybe dynamited this space. Still, marble all around. How did Marshall get here? How is he going to get out? 
Marshall felt his way around the room, circumnavigating the cubed area until at last his eyes adjusted. Able to see now without needing to constantly squint, the first thing Marshall realized was nothing he saw. It was what he felt. His stomach. Just seconds ago, Sir Isaac had cut it deeply. Perhaps mortally. He lifted up his shirt, searched with both his eyes and fingers. No wound. All gone. He was fixed. The next thing Marshall noticed was a switch, seemingly carved out of the marble itself. It was waist-high shaved in the middle of the room. There was nothing else to do, so Marshall did the obvious. He flicked it. Darkness. Darkness, but not utter darkness. The room had switched. The marble rock had switched. Instead of radiating white light, now it radiated a black sort of light. Not black light like we're used to, not the sort of kind that makes your teeth shine neon blue. No, simply, it was light. But its color, its hue, was somehow black. Marshall realized that he could actually see just fine. He could see himself, examine his stomach precisely where his stomach wound was not. And that's when he saw the words. Scrawled on the black marble, over and over again, in cursive font, in children's chicken scrapes, in big billowy uppercase letters, in E.E. Cummings all lowercase letters, in every form imaginable, these words, over and over again. Why have you forsaken me? Why Why have you you forsaken me? me? Why have you forsaken 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 me? Instinctively, Marshall, filling with fear, flicked the switch. Back to white. Once again, the white was too bright. It hurt his eyes. Marshall Winston waited for his pupils to dilate. He had to wait. He had to see if the writing was still there. It wasn't, but something else was. Standing in the very center of the cubic, windowless room, a boy. No taller than four feet. Marshall knew this boy in an instant. It was him, young Marshall. Young Marshall. The boy never moved, never opened his mouth, but Marshall heard the boy's voice begin to speak nonetheless. Now, unforsake me. Marshall's knees buckled, his teeth gnashed down on his tongue. He flicked the switch again. Black room. The words still everywhere. But the boy was gone. Flick. The boy's voice. Now. Now. Unforsake me. Now. Now. Unforsake me. 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 Marshall answered. How? But it was as if the boy's voice was a recording. It was stuck on repeat. Black Room. Seek the truth. 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 Black Room. Maybe the boy was answering. The game was simple. You ask a question, flick the light off and on again, and then the boy responds. Marshall flicked the light back to the whiteness. Go where the answers are. Go where the answers are. Go where the answers are. How do I get there? Flick. 
Pause. Hold it in your mind. Hold it in your mind. Hold it in your mind. Set piece number four. What fra damakaya? and reviewed the sticky notes address. How long do you think it'll take us to get there? Julian looked at Jen dejectedly. The sticky note read, Wat Fra Damakaya, 23-2, Mu 7, Klong Sam, Klong Luang District, Pathum Thani, 12120, Thailand. It took many days for Jen, Julian, Atticus, and the rest of the submarine crew to find their way to Thailand. If Jen wasn't famous and the world hadn't been bombed to smithereens, getting to Wat Phra Damakaya, a spectacular Buddhist temple, would have been easy. The temple's located just 16 kilometers north of Bangkok's international airport. As things stood, however, it wasn't that easy. Atticus was learning to walk again. He leaned heavily on a cane, but besides looking like an old man due to a slow and considerate gait, He and Jen both felt encouraged by his progress. When it came time to stretch out and walk about mainland Thailand, Atticus was not to be stopped. In fact, since Bangkok didn't suffer from the nuclear holocaust like Southern California did, everyone saved the captain of the submarine, caravan, together to the temple. In total, besides Atticus and Jen, there were four smugly citizens traveling to Wat Phra to hopefully pick up the lost copy of the Croatoan. Near Bangkok, Jen and company rented a large van. One of the smugglies, Ernest, drove the lot to the temple. They caught sight of it more than a kilometer away. It was the most beautiful thing Atticus had ever seen. Describing it does little service. The base of the structure is a slow ascent toward a giant dome, covering the dome in all directions, and in front of the dome in all directions, are approximately 300,000 golden Buddha statues. It's breathtaking, and like something out of this world. Like a UFO that's just hovered down to meet the land. As they began approaching, Ernest the driver noticed erratic behavior from just behind them. Four black Humvees were swerving in and out of lanes, crossing red lights to tail them. Breaking any number of national laws, not to mention spiritual ones, Ernest put pedal to metal and careened their gray van off the main drag, launching them full bore to the opening of the giant dome, up the ascent, crashing through various golden Buddhas. The Humvees followed. They smashed to a stop, sliding the van's side doors open. Jen spewed out with Atticus crutching his cane in tow. The smuggler guards only had one rifle and one handgun between them, but they branded them ready for battle with the oncoming onslaught. Julian yelled at Jen. Rushing out of the opening of the dome came four monks. They were dressed in the same orange robes that the young Asian woman was, who Jen and Julian met at Mrs. Moose's house. These monks seemed to know what was happening, what was going on. Two of them ran quickly and grabbed Jen by the arms. Come, one said to Jen. Atticus! Atticus! She yelled back. Atticus had fallen over, trying quickly to rush up the ascent to catch up. The Humvees were less than 100 yards away now. 
Help him! Jen screamed at the monks. They let go of her and did their due diligence. It must not be overlooked here, the heroism of the monks. Had they not listened to Jen's plea, Atticus would have been shot down by the Black Humvee people, just as all the smugglies that day were. No question about it. As it happened, Jen ran into the entrance of the Dome Temple, quickly followed by the two monks carrying Atticus part and parcel through the opening. As soon as they crossed the threshold, another monk slammed the door shut. On top of the door, they swung two large horizontal latches across. For the moment, they were safe. Outside, the firefight was just beginning. Come. There is not much time. He is waiting. Who? Jen said, but there was no reply. The interior of the Dome Temple was more spectacular than the outside, if at all possible. As stated earlier, there are 300,000 Buddhas coronating the outside of the building. Inside, there are an additional 700,000, one million statues in total. But it wasn't the main sanctuary itself that Jen and Atticus were being shooed to. At the base of a giant statue at the very center of a thunderous arena, several monks stood. The main one, the monk that appeared to be the leader, swept up a rug from off the floor, revealing a trap door. Four monks together somehow lifted the door off entirely. There was no latch or anything, it just lifted up from its four corners. Jennifer Dash, he is waiting for you. Who? These are for you. A monk revealed himself from the shadows. He held out a bunch of rags to Jen. Take this. What is it? The monk pulled a rag off the top to reveal a book. The Croatoan. Jen greedily accepted the offering. Another monk came out of nowhere holding a pile of papers. He extended them to Atticus, who stood limping beside Jen. And you, take these. What are they? Atticus said. The translation. Jen nodded at Atticus. The translation was maybe more important than the actual document. Atticus bundled the papers in his hands, held them tightly against his chest. They were all loose, the papers, so carrying them was already proving to be a precarious situation. Go down. Jen looked down. There was a steep wooden staircase leading down maybe ten feet. The room below looked to be painted emerald green and was quite well lit. Take the last door. Go in. Close door. Make no sound. Count to number 1,000. What? Why? The Black Humvee party, having rid themselves of the annoyance of smugly security, were now setting up explosives outside the hatch door entrance to the temple. Soon, they would plunder through. He will appear to you. Hurry. Set piece number five, the glass house. On the Friday morning that both Jen and Atticus visited the glass house, neither knew whether they would survive the day. Internally, Jen fought back sweeping thoughts of frustration towards Atticus. She'd come so far. All he needed to do was say, Yes, Jen, I'll come with you to save my sister. How was that so difficult? If she let this boil over, she'd resent Atticus the rest of her life. Which might only be a few minutes now, but still. She came to the glass house wearing a smugly mask at 4 a.m., A couple of men, one of them, one of the elders from the council, escorted her into the skyscraper. She knew it was all made of glass and whatnot, but right now, under the pre-dawn glow of yet still night, it felt dark and claustrophobic within the translucent walls. She had asked for a cubicle, a room that was adjacent to Atticus's. Initially, the elder council scoffed at this, stating that all rooms were scrupulously assigned, and changing the lineup now might confuse the whole weekend. 
Nevertheless, they seemingly capitulated. Jen was to be one floor above Atticus. He might have a hard time seeing her, but she'd be able to watch him just fine. By 4.25 a.m., Jen was already in her glass house room, if you could really call it a room. That left an hour and a half to wait and panic. For most folks, waiting an hour and 35 minutes in a tiny closet-sized room just to find out whether or not you're going to be poisoned or not would serve as an absolute insanity-producing torture. But not for this girl, not for Jen Dash. She cozied up into the corner and slept until about 5.40, just soon enough to watch Atticus slip into his room a floor below. He was nervous, sweating, raging against the closed door, shouting at himself. Staring at him, all the possible resentment in Jen vanished into thin air. He'd made a mistake. Atticus chose rashly, chose wrongly. That's just what happens when you go on adventures. It's like a byproduct. Jen understood this now, perhaps better than ever before. Just before the hour, worry struck her. What if they take him? His last moments will be filled with self-flagellation, self-hatred. He'll go to his grave hating himself. What sort of fate is that? Atticus deserves better. The time ticked away. If Scout was to live, it didn't matter whether Jen lived or died. It didn't matter whether Sir Isaac slit her throat in Mecca or not. What did matter was whether or not Scout would grow up with a brother. She'd lost her mother and father. She shouldn't have to suffer the loss of her brother, too. That wasn't fair. But what could be done? Nothing. Not now. Jen kept smiling down at Atticus, hoping that if he looked up at her, he'd be inspired, find some semblance of hope in her face. At one point, she thought he did see her, but then he grimaced and began yelling at the door. She concluded he must not have seen her. What could Jen do two minutes before execution? What could Jen do to save him? What could Jen do to save Atticus? Just this. Pray. She never necessarily believed in prayer, but once upon a time she did pray. Leaving Pishtako's island, she prayed to the rabbi. She prayed to the man who told her in a dream to scream. When the time is right, don't hesitate. Scream. Scream. Rabbi Itamar Levi had stopped Leviathan from coming that day, hadn't he? He'd saved Jen from the monster. And so, Jen prayed once more, silently. Her thought prayer went something like this. Dear Rabbi, please save Atticus. Please save him from this horrible place. Let him not be chosen. Let him live. Take me if you have to. As soon as she thought these words, her eyes grew heavy. Life around her was falling into darkness. They had chosen her, hadn't they? With her brain collapsing out of consciousness, Jennifer Dash peered down at her friend. He was still awake, alive and as nervous as ever. He was looking at her too. Jen smiled. He was going to make it out of here. Her prayer had been answered.
Music and sound effects used in this episode and every other episode of Solve the World are appropriately attributed at DanteStack.com. This episode also featured an excerpt from 50 People Whom I Pity. That excerpt, along with every other excerpt that has been used in previous Solve the World episodes, can be read at DanteStack.com under the tab 50 People Whom I Pity. While you're at DanteStack.com, heed the words of my wife, if you will, and go ahead and donate to me by clicking on the tip jar icon. Or type in DanteStack.com slash TIP dash J-A-R. Thanks, guys. See you next week. (laughs) 